Hello, wrestling fans. This is Al Getz, and welcome to the August 2023 edition of the Charting the Territories podcast. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how are you on this? Uh, is it a hot August night in New it's York? It's not so bad. It's not not so bad. It's been it, it's cooled off a little since the, the little heat wavy the last couple of weeks, but it's not not uh, we're not really feeling the, the dog day afternoon okay. yeah today. We, had, we had a pretty big heat wave down here in atlanta too i went to uh the braves game uh last week and uh you know i live a mile from the stadium so i walked to the stadium so it was 94 degrees so i'm drenched in sweat by the time i get there and then yeah. i have to sit in the sun uh <laughs> and, you know for the first hour plus of the game i actually yeah. um they just put out season tickets for next season, and I relocated to the same level uh, and the same general spot, but on the opposite side of home plate where the sun goes down earlier. Oh, so smart, I will be much guy. more cozy and comfortable nice. next season, but I'm going to have to get it through a little while longer or perhaps a good while longer because the way the Braves are playing, I, I think yeah, they're playing yeah. well into October mm-hmm. once again. Yep. As opposed to the no Mets, such luck. who no such uh, luck for any of the, either of the New York teams, really. I, and the Yankees are not doing much better, too. I'm actually going to see yeah. the Yankees. We're recording this a week before it comes out. I'm going to be in Chicago uh, after this, after we record this. I'm seeing the Braves at Wrigley Field, and then Ooh. I'm seeing the Yankees play the White Sox. And then the next night, I'm seeing Bruce Springsteen at Wrigley. Holy smokes. So it's the Braves, the Bronx Bombers, and the Boss. Wow. A a nice little uh, several-day trip to Chicago. But this month, we will not be in Chicago. We will be in, speaking of sunny, Southern California, looking at Mike LaBelle's territory, sometimes referred to as NWA Hollywood, in 1971. We'll go over the roster, the biggest feuds, the calendar, and the towns they ran— And then from there, we're going to talk about the biggest show LaBelle ran during the year, the August 27th card at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. For years, it's been claimed that the show drew over 25,000 fans and set an attendance record for the state and a gate record for the U.S. We're going to take an in-depth look at all the information we have regarding this show, including a conversation I had last month with someone who was not only there, but also worked for LaBelle at the time. We're also going to discuss the two previous largest publicly reported attendance crowds in California history prior to 1971 and see whether they were legit as well. And we're going to have all of our regular features, including stuff John bought me off eBay. This month I learned, and John plays Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. But first... I want to talk about my trip to Iowa last month. I was in Waterloo for the Tragos Thez Hall of Fame induction weekend. And I got to say, there are two people who do an incredible amount of work behind the scenes to make sure this whole weekend runs smoothly. Because there's there's various events at the Dan Gable Museum, as well as the Mm -hmm. Civic Center, um, I'm sorry, the Convention Center, and all these other things going on. Plus, um, 
to get to Waterloo, you have to fly into Cedar Rapids. So they're also running shuttles. Uh, and when I say shuttles, I mean, you know, a, a volunteer will pick you up at the airport and drive you 45 minutes to Waterloo. So oh, wow. there are two guys really responsible for planning this whole weekend, and they are Chad Olson and Troy Peterson. So I want to give them a huge shout out. Also, uh, Rebecca Roper, I believe is her name, who works at the museum, really does a great job with the weekend as well. But I, I had a, a really nice time. I met nice. Joe Dombrowski, who works huh. uh, currently for MLW and Triple yeah. A, and I think uh, Warrior Wrestling, among others. I got to reconnect with Greg Oliver of Slam Wrestling and Les Thatcher. Cool. And Les and I run into one another about every seven or eight years. And (laughs) in the past, when we would run into each other, it would be at events related to our mutual friend, Brian Hildebrand. Uh Uh, First time was the fundraiser they did for him in Pittsburgh uh, and then various memorial shows uh, after he passed away. So uh, Les actually told some great stories about 1971 when he was in Mid-Atlantic. And we covered that on the podcast a couple of months ago. I wish I wish I had some of Les's stories before we covered it. Also got to meet in person uh, for the first time, Jerry Briscoe. I finally met Colt Cabana. So my, uh, you know, my bingo card of of all the fellow uh, Jewish folks in wrestling, I think, is now complete. Because I met Max, I met MJF a couple years ago. And I think after that, I think the last one left was Colt. But I got him, baby. Got him. I did it. I also got to catch up with Bill DeMott. And we're talking about uh, Pittsburgh, the event for Brian Hildebrand. That was the last time I saw Bill DeMott when he was hurtling towards me from the top rope. (laughs) Uh, I managed him in a match against Cody Michaels, who was managed by Jim Cornette. And after Cody won the match, Bill decided to take out his frustrations on me, the manager. So he body slammed me and he gave me a moonsault. Ooh. And as I as I recall to Bill, the, that wasn't planned ahead of time. This was just on the spur of the moment. Bill <laughs> says, "You know what? I want to get I want to get a nice pop from this crowd. I was the heel all match, so I'm going to moonsault the manager." Okay. And I'm normally not big on taking moves from guys that I haven't worked with before. I mean, I'll I'll you know I'll let them punch me and take a bump. I have no problem with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, this you know, and of course it's you know it's. In the middle of the show, I can't tell him no. So yeah, I really yeah, had yeah. no choice but to lay down there and take it. And as I told Bill, honestly, like a feather. Wow. It was, it was, it was really uh, nice. completely perfect. Picture perfect moonsault. Didn't do any damage to me whatsoever. Nice. It's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, and inducted into the Hall of Fame this year were Boris Malenko, Rock Riddle, Bill DeMott, Les Thatcher, Gary Albright, Haku. Now... Haku was there, so you figure if Haku's in a room, even if it's a room filled with former pro wrestlers and even guys like Dan Gable, that he's probably the toughest person there. Yeah. But I think this is the first room Haku has ever been in where he was not the toughest person there. Because also there, and also being inducted into the Hall of Fame, was uh, Sarah McMahon, former Olympic uh, medal wrestler and then UFC fighter. Oh wow! Uh, she fought Ronda Rousey. She, yeah, she. Yeah, I think she was the first woman, first U.S. woman to medal at wrestling in the Olympics. I believe she won the silver. Oh wow! Uh, and yeah, uh, it's really, it's really funny. As uh, standing in close proximity of Sarah, she is, 
you know, obviously she's in great shape because she's a professional athlete, yeah. but you don't understand just like you don't appreciate how tall Billy Gunn is until you're standing next <laughs> to him. Same thing with JBL. JBL was there. And in a room full of normal sized men, JBL looked to be like six, nine. Wow. Maybe even seven, nine. But yeah, Sarah really, uh, even I think she's retired from active competition, but she was in incredible shape. Also receiving awards, the Historian Award, which I believe is named after Jim Melby, went to Tom Burke. Oh, nice. And the Gordon Soley Award for broadcasting went to Conrad Thompson. Wow, this is quite a crew. Yes, Jeez. this is a, an eclectic uh, crew inducted into the Trago Synthes wow. Hall of Fame in Waterloo, Iowa. And one of the things that they do at the hall is every year they encourage people to bring a friend the following year. So, John, I'm putting yes. you on the spot. Okay. If your schedule allows and if you are okay. able to get away, I am cordially inviting right. you to be my friend and accompany <laughs> me to the Tragos Thes Hall of Fame induction weekend next year in Waterloo, Iowa. I'm getting my pen out and I have a, a, a post-it. What is, okay. Do we know the dates? Do I know, don't well, believe they've announced the dates yet, but it's typically July, held August. in July. Uh, July Cauliflower August. Alley is usually in late August, early September, and this one tends to be a month or so before it. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye out. And again, I'm not saying you have to. This is your job. Your job as co-host of this podcast is not <laughs> on the line. Okay, but good. if you can... It's oh, a I'd really fun thing. It, it doesn't get as I much press as Cauliflower Alley or some of the big conventions, but it's a really nice uh, thing to go to. I would love to. Yes. Awesome. So there you I'm, there you hear it. Jerry, Gerald Briscoe, I, I'm bringing a friend next year, hopefully. <laughs> I'm hooked. You hooked me. I hooked. I hooked him. Yeah. Stuff John bought me off eBay. And John, this month, the item is related to what we're going to discuss. Yes. Yeah, I, I received it in the mail. Um, I was actually out of town the last couple of days, so I got it yesterday when I got back in town. So talk about just barely meeting the deadlines. <laughs> and John sent me a 16-page uh, Fred Blassie's photo album. It's I don't own this. Um, is this a Kitzer publication? This is a Kitzer publication, and I okay. believe that uh, Jeff Walton... Uh, Jeff Walton wrote the intro ah. and probably had a big hand in supplying uh, some of the photos to Norm is going to be my guess. But it's a ah. pictorial review of the Golden Gladiator. Ah. I don't believe there's a publication date on it, but based on the images here, I'm guessing it's going to be between 70 and 72. Because the most, I believe the most recent photos in it are of him uh, wrestling against the Sheik, which I believe okay. was 1970. Um, but yeah, so there's some action photos of him in the ring. There are some photos of him schmoozing with Hollywood celebrity types. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a really fun, particularly for the time period, for the early 70s. Uh. It's, a, it's a fun little thing. Of course, it's in black and white, and I guess it was on photocopied paper. Yeah. But it's 16 pages, chock full of photos of Freddie Blassie, along with uh, celebrities like... Jack Lemon, Jack Albertson, Fred McMurray, Michael Landon, Alan Hale Jr., Vicky Carr, Steve Allen, uh, and even <laughs> a youngish Regis Philbin. Ah. 
is in this thing. Uh, and then there's some photos of him posing with uh, in his tights, some action photos from the match against the Sheik, which was held, uh, which was the Blassie Cage match with um, uh, his mat, which Sheik's manager, um, the future Grand Wizard, in the uh, shark cage hanging above uh, the yeah. ring. Uh, there's a, a photo of him filing his teeth and then biting the crap out of somebody. <laughs> yeah, I it's, love these it's, little uh, it's neat. kiter and, things. Yeah, I, the kiter publications are good. And John, uh, do you know who you purchased this item from? I do, I do. I believe that's, that's another our, that's another notable person in the realm uh, yeah. of wrestling historians. Our 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 our, our fellow historian uh, Tim Hornbaker. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so I got, you know, I got the envelope and I, I sort of figured it was the, um, this month's eBay item. And I saw <laughs> that it was from Tim. I'm like, what? I, so I thought maybe it was something else that Tim was sending me <laughs> privately, but no, sure enough, you ordered it from Tim on the eBay and he sent it to me. Yes. <sighs> I got it close just under the wire there. For the yeah. Time, so we made it. We made uh, it. was this intentional that you were specifically looking for something related to Blassie or Southern California? Yeah, I was honestly for seeing this coming for for like the last six, seven months or so. I've been trying in vain to find you your own bottle of Monsel's powder, but I have (laughs) not been able to. So I was waiting and I was like, I can't wait any longer. I can't. I can't. I have to pull the trigger on it. So so you, you sent me a picture and was it a picture you have, or do you actually have a bottle of Monsell's powder yourself? I actually have a bottle. I'm holding it right now, tapping it. Yeah, this is okay. my Monsell's so, powder. Yeah. So now that we know that John has that, if anyone ever wants to invite us to an award ceremony for best podcasters, <laughs> John and I better win. Yeah, or else. Or else uh, John's got just, just the ticket to remedy that wrong. You better hope Dr. Bernard Schwartz is nearby, otherwise it's curtains, <laughs> pal. I, I don't think Bernard Schwartz is still around. Do we know? I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't believe so. I, I would guess, you know, 50 years, 50 years on, he yeah. uh, may have passed. But not everyone from the territory in 1971 has passed. No. Um, so we're going to talk about 1971 in Southern California. John, TV fans in the 90s had Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> Music fans in the 1980s had 8675309 Jenny. So let me ask you, what combination of numbers and words did pro wrestling fans in the 1970s, particularly those who lived in Southern California, have? I'm going to go with Richmond 95171. That is correct. Richmond 95171 was the uh, famous phone number to call to get tickets to shows in Los Angeles at the Olympic Auditorium. And Richmond 95171 is also the name of Jeff Walton's book. Jeff is best known as being a jack-of-all-trades for Mike LaBelle for many years. Also worked for a time as heel manager Tux Newman. He had a nice little run in Memphis and then in some Southern California promotions after LaBelle folded. Uh, Jeff's book is available directly from his son, Scott, you can PayPal or Venmo $30 to Scott at scottmwalton at gmail.com and also include your mailing address and they'll ship it right out to you. 
Uh, so John, I just recently read this book and really, I, I really liked how he talked about his involvement in the production meetings, the booking meetings and the things that were going on behind the scenes, because it reminded me a lot of my time working for Burt Prentice, where I did all sorts of odd jobs for Burt. I wasn't necessarily participating in the booking meetings, but I was, you know, attending them. I also sort of helped him edit the TV every week after we taped it Wednesdays. We'd go into the studio Thursday afternoons and do the editing. So just hearing Jeff talk about all the many hats he wore brought back memories uh, for me. Yeah, I love him, him talking about like, lay, helping lay out the programs and stuff like that. It's so, so interesting. Like, that's, that's Yeah, that's, this isn't, there are some behind the scenes stories, but it's not, you know, he's not blowing the lid off, you know, no. there's no big secrets or dirt or gossip, just some fun stories of a guy who ended up in the wacky and wild world of pro wrestling. So like mm-hmm. I said, you can uh, contact Scott M. Walton at gmail.com. That is Jeff's son, Scott. And the book is available for $30. For a lot more information and details about the LaBelle territory in 1971, be sure to check out A Year in the Life at chartingtheterritories.com, which contains a wealth of information. And here's some of the highlights. So the top stars in the territory during the year. On the babyface side, you have Freddie Blassie, Mil Mascaras, and Ray Mendoza. And on the heel side, you have John Tolis, Kinji Shiboya, Masa Saito, Black Gordman, and Goliath. So like many territories, we see there's an imbalance with more heels than babyfaces at the top of the cards. And again, this is consistent with the theme of pro wrestling, which was the uh, babyfaces having to beat the odds. Uh, particularly since both Gordman and Goliath and Kinji and Saito are teams, and there's not a regular main event babyface team. It's them feuding with Mil Mascaris, and Mil tries out different partners till he finds the one that clicks, or they build up to where Mil and Blassie finally team up for a one-off to vanquish the bad guys. This is pretty standard uh, how booking was in many of these territories. Um, other stars on the babyface side, you have Don Carson and Raul Mata, uh, as well as the team of Pantera Negra and Salvador Lothario. And Salvador was billed as a relative of Jose, but he's not actually related. On the heel side, you have Bull Ramos and the professional, who is a masked Doug Gilbert. And the professional got a huge push. He won the um, annual Battle Royal at the beginning of the year, and this was the mm-hmm. second time that LaBelle did a battle royal uh, early in the year after uh, following in the footsteps of Roy Shire, who had done it, I think, two or three times prior to LaBelle first doing it. So he he's in line for a huge push, but he ends up uh, not being happy, I believe, with his pay and gives his notice not too long into his run. So they finish him off, uh, have him putting guys over and send him on his way pretty quickly. You know, Doug Gilbert worked in a lot of places. Of course, this is Doug Lindsay, not Eddie Gilbert's younger brother. Uh, Doug worked in a lot of places as the professional. Did you Have you ever heard of him leaving other places abruptly like he did here? I have not, no. No. Okay, so it just might have been a thing. Maybe he didn't like, you know, the sunshine in, in the dead of winter because he was here in January and February. So maybe yeah, he would, I mean, I've heard... Maybe he preferred the snow because he had all, he spent a lot of time up in the, the AWA team with Steinborn. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I've heard stories of a couple other guys. I think was it the spoiler who we talked about a few a while back, and he had similar complaints about pay. Yeah, and that 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 led to Ron Starr being the spoiler for right. a while yes. and, yep. and asking. So there was there, but there was some of that uh, in this territory at some point with some guys not being happy with their pay. But. Yeah, and and as we'll you know, as we'll talk about a little bit later, both Blassie and Tolis were not happy with their pay for the Coliseum <laughs> card. Uh, but that's that's just always the way things go. Mm, now, yeah. further down the cards, as always, there's some interesting names: a young Jimmy Snuka, who's billed as the Great Snuka. We also have Mil Mascaris's brother Elsie Gadelico, uh, and Cowboy Frankie Lane, who got a really big push here uh, coming in towards the end of the year. And it's sort of surprising, given his his status in other territories, to see him pushed as hard as he was here. But again, a lot of that was due to Blassie leaving uh, in the fall, and they they desperately needed to make a new uh, babyface main eventer. So perhaps it's just a case of Lane being in the right place at the right time. You also have a couple of wrestlers who. This might not have been their primary gig. They were regularly wrestling for LaBelle, but they were stationed in Southern California because they were doing work in Hollywood, uh, either acting or stunt work or a combination of both. And I believe Earl Maynard and Johnny Zenda fit the role here. We talked about Zenda in the past as one of the, as the only wrestler who was killed, who's been killed on screen by Michael Myers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hot rod johnny zenda yeah and, and yeah and, and his legitimate uh career as a hall of famer in the drag racing industry yeah so yeah it's a great place to work for guys that are looking to break into acting uh you pick up some bookings here and there for labelle and then uh when you're not booked you go to audition after audition after audition you can <laughs> see the whole roster at charting the but i want to talk about two wrestlers that weren't a part of the regular roster that are doing just um, mostly just working TV. And this territory, they did a live TV from the Olympic on Wednesday nights. And this was broadcast live on the Spanish language station in LA and then syndicated throughout the U S in several different markets. And this, uh, this is the only show they ran on Wednesday nights. And it's, it's kind of like a hybrid TV taping slash house show in that they're charging admission and it's a full house show, but it's not like Portland. Portland, I think, is the best example of what I would call a hybrid house show slash TV taping. Because what they did in Portland, they would air the, the a few matches live on TV and they're typically um, matches with a pushed guy against a preliminary wrestler. So they're your typical TV enhancement matches while doing promos to set up the off TV main event that takes place that night. And they literally are attempting to get fans to get up off their couch right then and there and drive to the Portland sports arena to see the main events. (laughs) Of course, in a big city like LA, you can't do that. So this, the whole card is laid out like a TV taping and the main events aren't always necessarily a main event caliber match. It could be Mascaris and, uh, you know, Mil Mascaris and El Cicadelico against a mid-card tag team or, you know, Blassie in a, in a warm-up match. But they also then did live TV on Saturday nights that aired in L.A. Live. I think from, uh, at this time, it was from 7 to 8.30, although at other times it was from 
no, I think that's right. It's 7 to 8.30. And then the wrestlers that work TV would also, as soon as they're done with their spot on TV, they would hit the road to go to a house show. Oh, wow. Which is wild to think about. And and the house shows typically had late start times, particularly during the summer. They wouldn't start till 8.30, even 9 o'clock in some places to give the wrestlers time to get there from the TV studio. It's but the two, two TV yeah. tapings a week. Wow. Yeah. Well, but but the the you know the, the Wednesday TV taping isn't a TV taping as we think of of it. Yeah. There were yeah, promos yeah, yeah. and whatnot, but they're not doing things to build up house show matches. The uh, interviews, I believe, um, the Spanish speaking wrestlers did it in Spanish, and the English speaking wrestlers did it in English. Whether they had a translator or not, I'm not quite sure. So it it was just a thing. I don't know if they got paid by the Spanish language. I think it's called the Spanish International Network to do this or not. But it's just sort of a, a you know, a, a weird, I, I don't want to say non-canon, but in many ways it was huh. uh, its own separate entity and not necessarily using angles to build to the, the Olympic house shows. But the two guys that were not a part of the roster that, that just worked TV were Silent Earl and Broadway Venus. <laughs> and Silent Earl, there's an article about him. No one knew who, who his uh, real identity was. None of the major uh, results aggregator sites knew his real name. But I stumbled across an article from the Bakersfield, uh, I believe the paper is called the Bakersfield Californian where it has an article on Silent Earl and mentions his day job, which is working for the Bakersfield Californian. <laughs> uh, his real name was Earl Utzman, U-T-Z-M-A-N. And in 1971, he's, if he's not a rookie, he's less than, you know, he's no more than two years in the business. Uh, he was undersized and he was legitimately deaf. Hence the name Silent Earl. So, John, we have Silent Earl. We yeah. have Solento Rodriguez. Yes. We have um, Leroy McGurk, who was blind in one eye, completely blind in one eye for his yeah. during his whole in-ring career. Can yeah. you think of any other wrestlers that were deaf and or mute and or blind? Ah, I know there were a couple other silent guys uh, from like the, the, the 20s, 30s, 40s. There was like one guy, a guy in Louisville, uh, Silent Condell, I want to say. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. There was a guy also, Silent Rattan, R-E-A-T-T-A-N, like a wicker chair, like the wicker rattan. Uh, worked, I think he actually worked in the 30s, 40s in, in like the what would become the McGurk territory for Sam Avey. Uh, and later in the Pacific Northwest, all over the Midwest. And there, I think there's also a guy later, closer to our time, uh, Silent Mackney. Uh, yeah, I've heard that name. Mm-hmm. I don't, but I don't know if he was actually like a de- deaf. Yeah, I don't know if was legit. Or so, how about but. blind? How about blind wrestlers? How about perhaps that I think worked for <sighs> Luthez's UWA in the mid '70s in Nashville? Oh, George uh, George Wangruff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Legally blind. Yeah. 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 Good, good call. I totally, I totally. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Oh, come on, Al. (laughs) Jeez. 
So yeah, so it's it's just it's it's neat to put a face uh, to the name. They have pictures of a silent Earl oh. Utzman in action and talk about his day job um, working behind the scenes for the Bakersfield Californian. As far as Broadway oh. Venus, uh, oh, in boy. trying to figure out a little more info about him, I found an interview with him on YouTube. This is something. Uh, this is something, and I really don't <laughs> want to say much more than that. Um. I, I, and I don't I don't want to knock the people involved too much because the the video was posted by Broadway Venus's grandson. And in the description, he says the producer and the cameraman for this was um, the grandson's father, hence Broadway Venus's son. So given all the families involved, there are some things I want to say about the interviewer. But. I don't want to because it, it might just be a family thing. I don't want to offend. Uh, I don't want yeah, to offend it, anybody. And in defense of <laughs> everyone involved, this is basically just like the raw footage, not edited. True. So a lot of this has to do with those really, no, not spoiling it, just some weird, awkward silences and stuff that you would presumably edit out of your finishing. So, so there's a lot of that stuff, which adds to the, the overall... <laughs> <laughs> it's uncomfortableness of it all is, is what yeah, I would say. It's really uh, fun. Again, now I don't know much about Broadway Venus, so I can't state to a fact that he's embellishing his career achievements or not. John, do do you know for a fact if Broadway Venus was a champion and, and uh, main eventer in Mexico for several years? I I, I did look and, 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 and saw that he did work in Mexico. The well, the the champion slash main event stuff I I could I cannot attest to but he did actually work in Mexico that that is that is for certain but yeah this interview like like I said the interviewer is uh, a little uncomfortable at times and for the most part Broadway Venus is it it's treated like I don't want to say shoot interview but it's treated like a sit down interview with someone who used to wrestle where they're just reflecting on their career yep. and it's very you know laid back and this and that until the end when the interviewer asks him the question that they always ask wrestlers in these days was it real or was it fake and then all of a sudden Broadway immediately gets into character gets up yes. and starts yelling and screaming if you think it's fake guy come come say it to my face and I'll show you it's just so yeah. it comes out of nowhere too Cuts a promo on Lord James Bleers, you know, he does the whole the whole thing. And it's like, no, this guy has my attention all yeah. of a sudden. How does this happen? Yeah. I wanna, so it's I wanna... <laughs> the whole the entire footage is just fascinating to watch for many reasons. So uh we'll post a link to that on X, the app formerly known as Twitter. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we have a new, yeah. Uh, so, and I'll also uh, post the uh, article from the Bakersfield, California about Silent Earl. So just look for my posts on X at Al Gets Wrestling. <laughs> now, aside from calculating the spot ratings for all the wrestlers in the territory to determine who the main eventers and the upper mid carters and the mid carters and the preliminary wrestlers are, we also use a metric called FLW which stands for feud length in weeks to measure the biggest feuds in the territory. So John, if I asked you off the, you know, randomly what the biggest feud was in Southern California in 1971, you know, without thinking, without analyzing, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, I definitely go Blasi Tolos. This is the, you know, this is the main event of the big, the big, the big, the big card right. of the, 
calls in. This, and, that's, and, what, yeah. that's what I would guess. And I think if you if I asked a dozen historians or people familiar with this territory at this time, the same question, they'd all answer the same thing. And they're not wrong. However, using the FLW score, Blasi Tolis does not show up on that. And so yep. I want to explain why. Uh, FLW is based on rewarding feuds that have multiple rematches in multiple towns. This feud, or at least the 1971 iteration of it, was by and large designed to be a one-off match at the Coliseum. They had a rematch two weeks later at the Olympic, and then a few weeks after that, they had one house show match in Ventura, and that was it. And I think one of the reasons they didn't take it around the horn was because they had taken it around the horn in 1970. They had five matches at the Olympic uh, mm. three, on three consecutive Friday night Olympic cards. They, they, ran, they ran TV every Wednesday at the Olympic, and then they ran a, a traditional house show every other Friday. So for three straight Every other Friday cards, they had Blasi versus Tolis. Then they ran it four weeks later, and then they ran it, I think, six or seven weeks, six or eight weeks after that. So five times in a several-month period. And oh, that wow. feud involved snakes and cages and the Roman gladiator <laughs> stretcher match. So stretcher they, they match, really did yeah. everything. You know, they threw everything at it in 1970, which might explain why it was just a one-off, and also because they wanted to draw one big crowd at the Coliseum. Yep. So it, it was all the emphasis on the promotion of the feud wasn't, you can see this in your town, it's you can see this at the Memorial Coliseum on August 27th. So it reminded me of the first match, uh, the first wrestling card at the Superdome in New Orleans, which was in 1976, and which was based, uh, which was built around Terry Funk, defending the NWA World Heavyweight title yep. against Bill yep, yep, Watts, yep. which was also specifically designed to be a one-off match as opposed to a feud that went around the horn. So, John, can you think of any other uh, matches that were specifically designed to only happen once? Hmm. I mean, I, the, 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 the first one that comes to mind is like the Bruno Pedro match in 72 from right. around the same sure. time. That was Shea Stadium, right? Yep. Um, <laughs> any, any of those, uh, you know, quote unquote, like attraction type matches, like, uh, like, just think like Dick the Bruiser versus Alex Karras, stuff like that. Or, you know, even a lot of those, you know, the super card type stuff, um, you know, or those title unification matches, like, back, like the Florida, Florida 78, yeah. yep, or superstar Harley in, in Florida in 78, that sort of stuff, just like one off. I mean, they, they did wrestle each other at other times, but there was no, you know, it was there was no. It wasn't a, no, a several week long storyline, per se. No, no, they're not going around the horn doing it. It was just a one off thing. Yeah. So it happened rarely, but it did happen. And, and first, you know, we need to think about the difference between an angle and a feud. Does a good angle automatically make a good feud. Uh, there are probably numerous times where uh, bookers, promoters put together an angle and after it, after it aired, after it went off, they said, man, that was great. That was perfect. We're going to sell out for sure. Mm. And they didn't. And there are probably times when they ran a pretty basic angle and they're like, well, we'll see what we can get. And for some reason, the fans really responded to it. So yeah. when we talk about Blassie Tolis, I, I always say, 
1971, it was the most memorable angle in, you know, in the history of that territory and perhaps even more than just that territory. But to call this a feud, it sort of depends on how you define the term feud. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, off the top of your head, can you think of any angles that have gone down in history as great angles that maybe weren't huge successes at the box office? The first one I thought of, uh, I love this angle, uh, the angle in Georgia with the Freebirds and Kevin Sullivan and Austin Idol, the four flat tires angle, okay. which I think they recycled from from Knoxville a few I years. Th- everyone did oh, a yeah. four flat tires angle of some sort at some point, <laughs> but yeah. And it's like, I love the the premise of the angle is uh, very clever, you know, for wrestling, at least. And at the same time, there's almost like a ridiculous, like George Costanza, like quality to Michael Hayes being exposed. Right. <laughs> and but it's like I, that angle. It's like, so I love I love that angle. And it's like, I think they only got like not even a month out of it. Maybe one match at the Omni and three or four other house shows it's like the the angle is so good the feud should be good also and right you know there's the, that the the, the dibiase murdoch flair uh mid-south you know, Reed, yeah mid-south that one too again this not that you know directly didn't lead to anything it set those guys up to all have better box office you know with other stuff but that Angle specifically didn't lead to anything. Well, I, I, uh, Cornette, Cornette has always claimed that DiBiase never, never drew in the U.S. Uh, or, or before the WWF. That hmm. that uh, even even with this angle, he wasn't a big draw. I'm not. I'm not sure. And here's the other thing: we don't know the numbers. We might know the numbers for the Superdome show for or like for the big shows behind these feuds. But yeah, yeah, yeah. to really say whether a feud was successful or not, you would need to have all of that information. So. You know, the term feud is hard to define. If I asked a dozen wrestling historians to define the term feud in no more than one or two sentences, I'd probably get 12 different responses. Um, In addition to that, not only is it hard to define, it's hard to measure whether a feud was successful or not, given the limited data we have and we will and, and the fact that we'll probably never get much more. In a perfect world, if we had attendance figures for every house show run by every territory, then yes, we could use that to determine which feuds drew the most money or drew the most fans. But we don't have that for the majority of shows in this era. And even when we do have them, we're not sure if they're real or if they're, you know, embellished numbers. So when I came up with FLW... The idea was to use the number of matches as a proxy for attendance. If we don't have attendance, well, we know as a broad general rule of thumb that if a match drew well, they would have a non-conclusive finish finish and build to a rematch, and they would also bring it around to the other cities in the territory. So... By that token, if a match happens multiple times in the same town and then moves to other towns and also has rematches there, I can't prove that that means it drew well, but it almost certainly did. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep running it. But in rare cases like this where you're building to a one-off, that that 
match isn't going to show up in the biggest feuds uh, yeah. using my FLW stat. But there's another factor that is specific to this territory that comes into play when looking at FLW. And that's the fact that the television, the uh, the live TV held run on Saturday nights and broadcast on the English language station in Los Angeles was geared towards the Friday night house shows at the Olympic Auditorium. Uh, like I said earlier, they ran every other Friday night. Uh, so they'd run a house show at the Olympic, and then the next night they'd do a live TV and they, at, the, at the TV studio, and they would set up the main event for the show 13 days away. And then the following Saturday mm. at the next live TV, they'd, you know, hit it again, and, and they'd promote it again. So because of that, this is a very Olympic-centric TV. And of all the other shows they ran, they had a weekly loop where they were running 10 towns. Um, most of them were in the L.A. TV market, and they are smaller towns like El Monte, Northridge, uh, San Bernardino, and some others. And because they're in the L.A. market, that means they get the L.A. TV which is plugging the Olympic mm. in Jeff Walton's book. He mentions one specific time where they said he, they, he was able to plug uh, a match for the El Monte house show on the LA TV. And, and the way he said it made it seem like this was a very rare occasion. Interesting. So because of that, if you're building up a match that's happening at the Olympic, you can't tell those same fans or you can go to El Monte on Monday or <laughs> Northridge on Saturday or San Bernardino on Tuesday and see the same match. No, they want everybody to go to the Olympic. Yeah. You know, the WWWF, you can run the same, you know, the same angle would make its way from New York to Boston, to Philly, to Pittsburgh, to Baltimore and, and yeah, many yeah. other markets in between here. They've got LA and then the only other TV markets they're in is San Diego Bakersfield and the small market of El Centro, California slash Yuma, Arizona. Hmm. So the weekly schedule, John, uh, in 1971, it looked like this Mondays, they ran shows in Ventura and Costa Mesa. And both of those are in the LA market. Tuesdays was San Diego and Northridge. Uh, the first half of the year, Northridge was a Saturday night town, but then it moved to Tuesdays. Northridge is in the LA market. San Diego is in the San Diego market. Wednesdays was the live house show slash TV at the Olympic. Thursdays was Bakersfield and El Monte. El Monte was in the LA market. Bakersfield was in the Bakersfield market. Fridays, they alternated between the Olympic Auditorium and Santa Monica. Santa Monica was in the LA TV market. And then on Saturdays, they ran San Bernardino. And in the later half of the year, I think they ran El Centro. Uh, mm -hmm. And San Bernardino was also in the L.A. market. So that's a lot of shows where they can't plug yeah. main events from the angles on TV. What they have to do is they do a lot of tag matches. And it would be Gordman and Goliath against Mil Mascaris and somebody. And perhaps they try gotcha. out a variety of partners until Elsie Cadelico comes in and they're able to finally, you know, vanquish the heels. 
or Shibuya huh. and Saito against Blassie and, and a rotating cast of baby faces until Blassie finds the one that leads them to victory, or they'll split it off into a stipulation singles match between Blassie and Gordman. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so it's just a different style of booking in this territory yeah. than we'll see in most other places that had at least a half dozen TV markets, and in many cases they had more. I think McGurk at one point had 15 different TV markets, and he's running three My shows goodness. a night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's yet another reason why they didn't do a whole lot of rematches at the Olympic, and that is that at this point in time, the Olympic was generally selling out for mm-hmm. the Friday night house shows. Um, a sellout was either 9,700 seats or 10,400 seats, depending on who you believe. But most attendance figures at this time were actually more than that. And and it's generally believed they would sell standing room only tickets uh, until they, you know, until they just couldn't fit anybody else in there. Wow. Um, <laughs> they had such a good deal. They, they held the lease on the auditorium and I guess the rent was low enough that it made no financial sense for them to try and run a larger venue as their regular venue in LA. You have the forum and you have the sports arena, which uh, I believe one of them seated 14,000 and the other one seated 16,000. And they probably could have done really well attendance wise in those venues. They all for sure would have drawn at least 10,400 each time out because that's what they're drawing at the Olympic. But the rent was so much higher. It made no financial sense for them to do that. Mm. Plus as leaseholders on the Olympic, they also rented it out for boxing matches and roller games on off nights. Oh yeah. Hmm. But if you're always selling out, you don't need to run that one feud into the ground when you finally find gold at the box office. Mm -hmm. So here from a booking standpoint, They'll build, you know, they'll run angles for matches and they'll find ways of prolonging feuds by, you know, taking tag team matches and and then break them off into singles or a singles feud, maybe two singles feuds stretches into a tag team match. And then they run singles matches the following show, but they flip the partners. Like if Blassie's feuding with Gordman and Mascaris is feuding with Goliath, they might do singles matches, then a tag feud, and then an angle coming out of the tag match would then lead to Blassie versus Goliath or Maskers versus Gordman. Hmm. So, so that would be how they would prolong these feuds. But the, yeah, they really didn't need to strike lightning because they were already striking lightning. And at this point, I believe the, the Olympic was selling out uh, starting in mid 1970, which not coincidentally enough is around the time that Blassie turned babyface. Interesting. The Olympic had ups and downs over the years. There are times when it's selling out for a few years straight. And then there are times when it's only half full or even less than half full. Hmm. Back to the attendance figures. Like I said, for these Friday night house shows, it's generally believed that these attendance figures, which uh, were published in one of the newspapers, were legitimate. However, the Wednesday night shows, the attendance figures for those may have been embellished. I was uh, just in Sacramento doing some research at the California State Archives. They had a ton of information on LaBelle's, on California, not just LaBelle, but also Northern California, from 1946 through 1960. So I did some spot checking, and it seems that 
the embellishment of attendance at the Olympic was done on a sliding scale, but not in the way you would think. <laughs> the lower the attendance, the more they embellish. And I, I've seen ones where the attendance figure reported to the commission was less than a thousand, but publicly in the newspaper, they reported, you know, five, six thousand. Oh, wow. But when the attendance was really, really high, they only slightly embellished it, if at all. So without the commission figures from the 1970s, I can't say for sure that this held true. But my belief is Friday nights were just about always automatic sellouts. And the Wednesdays had somewhere between, you know, had something up to a few thousand. The average attendance, I think, was just under 5,000. The real attendance was a fraction of that, but I don't know what fraction it was. Interesting. Do we know wh why the we have the records for the stuff that goes further back and not... It's just a matter of... I, we don't know why. And okay. a lot of places that, that have records from the athletic commission don't have complete info. It's just, it's a, it's a roll of the dice as to what they have gotcha. and what they don't. Um, Kansas, for example, has pretty complete information for several decades worth, maybe even 70 years worth of stuff. Uh -huh. Well, maybe more like 50 years worth of stuff. Here, they had complete stuff from 46 through 60. And when I say complete, I don't mean they had every single thing. I mean, they have the ledgers that recorded the house show um, attendance and revenues. Gotcha. They had those. Um, for earlier years, there are some things, there are some ledgers that have entries, but um, each ledger book was for a year. So they might, uh, they had one for like 1928. Then they had one for 1932. Then they had one for 1935. Gotcha. They, they weren't complete, but if they had the year, they had the complete year. Um, uh, okay. Um, I actually, and well, I was going to mention this later, but I actually spoke with Patricia Blackstock of the California state athletic commission as part of my research into the 1971 uh, Coliseum attendance. Um, and you know, I talked with her and I said, the state archives has this, um, if they don't have it, would you have it or would you, you know, would, would it be somewhere else? And, and her answer was to the best of her knowledge, if it's not at the state archives, anything from, you know, before like the nineties, if the archives don't have it, it's been destroyed. Huh. Okay. So they have what they have and what they don't have is probably long gone or at least stored in stored in the room uh where uh Raiders of the Lost Ark ended. <laughs> yeah. That room with all the uh memorabilia and, and, and whatever uh, boxes yeah. and boxes worth of stuff. So let's talk about this angle. Oh yeah, yeah. The angle, of course, was John Tolis throwing Monsell's powder into the eyes of Freddie Blassie and May. I have a detailed look at this angle on a year in the life at chartingtheterritories.com, looking at all the moving pieces and all the different parts to this angle that uh, made it so memorable. Uh, and this is different. Normally, you know, we have the profiles uh, that are written by David Gibb. He does have a profile on Shibuya and Saito, but I also wrote this profile that is not on a wrestler, but on an angle. And it's, you know, it's an interesting look into how all these little pieces came together. And it's, it's a very Watts like angle. 
Um, similar to what we were talking earlier about the, you know, DiBiase, Murdoch, Flair, Reed. There were so many moving parts, and it also was based on the legitimate history between DiBiase and Murdoch, where Ted was legitimately Murdoch's protege a decade earlier. Yeah, yeah. And and here it's the same thing. And I love the, uh, you know, one of the, not I want to give away the whole article, but they talk about uh, how the the plan to run the Coliseum was not even put in motion, but finalized like a year and a half yeah. prior and, to and, this. So that's. And this was yeah. this was something that Jeff Walton has, has said in the past and that he told me when we spoke uh, in July that things got hot uh, right around when they turned Blassie. It's actually also possible that. The Coliseum was in play before they turned Blassie, the, with the idea being they they knew this was going to be the thing that would, would enable them to draw a huge house at the Coliseum. So Blassie mm. turns babyface in the spring of 1970, which is around the same time that they penciled in the August 1971 date at the Coliseum. The other thing is weather-wise, late in the summer was ideal. Also, yeah. they wanted to have it before probably before school was back in session and before college football started because the Coliseum at this point in time hosted not only USC, but I think also UCLA. Oh, wow. So, you know, they, they wanted a date in the late summer that avoided conflicts with college football. And that was right before kids went back to school. So August, late August is pretty much the only time to do it. The Coliseum also, uh, hosted the Los Angeles Rams, and for a time, believe it or not, the Dodgers hmm. played there. I think when they first moved to L.A. before they built a stadium, they played at the L.A. Coliseum. So let's talk about the attendance. Before we get into it, uh, a couple of years ago, I did the story of the masked Mr. Zabo, who wrestled for Leroy McGurk in 1963. And to get the answers to my question of who Mr. Zabo was, I ended up reaching out to some of the most respected wrestling historians around for their thoughts. Um, And here I did the same thing. I mentioned Patricia Blackstock at the California State Athletic Commission. I also uh, had an email exchange with Emily Marquina, who is currently the guest experiences manager at the L.A. Coliseum. Also ended up speaking with Tim Hornbaker, Steve Johnson, and Dave Meltzer. And of course, my conversation with Jeff Walton. Uh, John, have you ever spoken with Jeff? I have never spoken with Jeff. No, okay. no, I have no no correspondence. Have the book, read it a few years ago, and I sort of did a little skim when we were uh, starting to talk about this. But I, I, I have never, 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 ta- never spoken with him. No. Yeah, I spoke with him. Uh, it was actually on the fourth of July, uh, huh. and the conversation was arranged by Mike Tenay. So I do want to uh, publicly oh. thank Mr. Tenay for setting this all up. Um, but I had a great conversation with Jeff. I could have talked to him for a couple more hours or, uh, you know, perhaps call him once every week with random questions. But I, <laughs> I, I haven't done that yet. Now, Jeff's first foray into pro wrestling was uh, was as president of Freddie Blassie's fan club. Mm-hmm. And you can read that about that and how that all started in his book, Richmond 95171. We mentioned earlier how you can get your hands on a copy of that book. Jeff would go on to become LaBelle's publicist, uh, a local promoter, an on-screen NWA representative, and overall overall right-hand man for many years, including in 1971. 
So Jeff was really helpful in answering my questions about the territory at the time, and in particular about the show at the Coliseum. It was publicly reported that the show drew 25,847 fans paying $142,158.50. But there are a couple of sources that have claimed for years that the attendance was significantly less than that, more like 18,000 people. So big difference between 25, 8, and 18. Yeah. Now, on last month's podcast, we discussed various ways of determining whether publicly announced attendance slash gate figures in wrestling were more likely to be accurate. To, to be clear, we're not saying we can prove anything, but we're using multiple pieces of information, uh, multiple pieces of evidence to hone in on which one was more likely to be correct. And in wrestling in particular, it's important not only to know your source, but also your source's source. Mm -hmm. Because a source has a source, of course, of course. (laughs) And in wrestling, that means not only knowing who the source's source was, but when they got the info. Mm. For example, what Bill Watts might have told somebody in 1984 would be very different from what Bill might have told them in 2001 when he's retired and out of the business completely. So that also will come into play at times when trying to analyze wrestling information. So, John, in our discussion last month about attendance slash gate figures, what did we say about publicly reported gate figures when they actually give a dollar amount in the newspaper? If the dollar amount is listed uh, in the paper publicly, then that's usually more likely to be accurate since that's what they'll be. Well, reporting. and the reason being what? That, because once you say that, you may be tying yourself to putting that number down on the commission paperwork. Yeah, yeah the commission. Which means paying taxes on it. And that's, I haven't yep. met a wrestling promoter yet who <laughs> willingly paid more than they should have. So right off the bat, the fact that this dollar figure was announced publicly in newspapers the day after the show is a hint in the more likely to be correct column. Mm -hmm. But we also, John, talked about another piece of info that if we had the attendance and if we had the gate, we could use those two numbers to come up with a third number and perhaps do something with that. So what was that? I believe it would be the ticket price, perhaps? Yeah. You can take the gate and divide it by the attendance and come up with an average ticket price. And how that can be useful is if you know for a fact what ticket prices were, sometimes you can instantly tell that something is wrong. In this case, we have 25847 paying a little over $142,000. It works out to an average ticket price of $5.50. Ticket prices for this show, I know for a fact, were seven fifty and five dollars, with kids uh, being able mm. to sit in the uh, five dollar tier for just two fifty. So presumably, floor seating or field seating was seven fifty, and then anything um, the permanent seats, you know, in the in the Coliseum for the you know in the stands in the levels were five dollars each. But a kid, if you came with a kid, they could get it for two fifty. Okay. So the average ticket price of 550 
is between $5 and $7.50. And it's closer to $5. And if we assume that the majority of the seats were in the $5 price tier, because those are the permanent seats in the Coliseum, and whatever they could put on the field was the $7.50, that checks out. Um, It's very reasonable. uh, And in fact, doing the math, um, it means somewhere between... uh, Around between eighteen and twenty-two thousand uh, would have been sitting in the uh, in the stands, and the remainder, somewhere around five thousand, would have been sitting on the floor. Hmm. Okay. Which, based on what we know about the setup, uh, including an image uh, of yep. the of the crowd at the show, that all checks out. That seems legit. Huh. Okay. So again, another check in the possible, you know, that this is uh, likely correct. Yeah. Now, in a perfect world, we'd be able to look at the actual documents from the Athletic Commission, but as, as we said earlier, they did not have anything from the 1970s. Uh, I emailed Dave Meltzer and asked him his thoughts, you know, on, on which number it is. I didn't say what, you know, what do you think the number was? I, you know, sort of made the same arguments I'm making here and asked him, you know, for his beliefs. And his response, um, he didn't know, but he said that Mike believed the 25,000 number. Hmm. Now, at the time, I assumed that meant Mike Tanay, although I guess it's possible he was referring to Mike Lano. But either Uh, way, either Tanay or Lano, (laughs) probably, probably Tanay, has always believed the 25,000 number. And and Tanay, um, you know, Tanay is the wrestling professor. He probably has talked with many people on this subject. So again, if it was Tanay, that's another checkmark in the seems likely Call. Yeah. On top of that, we also have eyewitness reports, and these are from the John Tolis obituary that Meltzer wrote uh, upon Tolis's passing in 19 and sorry, 2009. Diane Devine, who was uh, the president of John Tolis's fan club, along with Mike Lano, I think they ran it together. Diane was a wrestling fan that lived in Springfield, Missouri. And In any of the newsletters from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, if you see results um, sent in from the McGurk territory, they almost certainly came from Diane. Oh. Diane attended this show, and according to her, she she absolutely believed 25,000. Interesting. Um, But it's one of those things, though, if someone says, you know, if you're, you know, at the show and you see a huge crowd, if someone says 25,000, you could say, it seems right. If they yeah. said 40,000, <laughs> you might say, that seems right. Yeah. If, they, if they said yeah. less. So you don't know. But again, she thinks 25,000. Okay. Both Tolis and Blassie, as we alluded to earlier, not only thought there were 25,000 fans in the building, they both thought there were more. <laughs> of course. and they reportedly were so upset by it in particular Blassie he ends up leaving the territory uh, in October and he does come back for periodic uh, stays here and there and some one-off shots but by and large he becomes a WWWF guy after this because he was so upset so here that means that Tolis and Blassie are are basically accusing Mike LaBelle of skimming Hmm. we mentioned skim Last month in our conversation about wrestling attendance and whatnot. And it's generally believed that many promoters shaved a little bit off the top much of the time. Now, it leads me to a funny aside, because when I was in Waterloo last month at the Tregos Thez 
Hall of Fame weekend. Uh, during the banquet, I was actually talking with a couple of guys about this very topic, about how some promoters skimmed off the top. It's never proven, but people always believed it was so. And as I'm having this conversation, I'm realizing that the person sitting next to me would be a very good source of information. Because at the time I was having this conversation, I was sitting next to Bob Roop. <laughs> Wow. So I turned to Bob and I asked him wow. uh, about his experiences with, uh, you know, with Fuller. And he pretty yeah. much, you know, repeated what, what has been said in the past that he uh, personally witnessed the two woman, women working the box office um, skimming, skimming money off the top. Interesting. I also got to show Bob a picture of Ron Wright's chisel that I took uh, this past <laughs> February when Ron's son came to uh, the oh, show I worked for uh, for Bo James. And uh, so I showed him the picture on my phone and, you know, there's there's splotches of dried blood on it. He points to one particular splotch and says, I think that's my blood right there. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. When we talk about skim, there's one thing to consider. There are probably some venues where it was easy to skim and some places where it was virtually impossible. So, John, Mm. can you think of what what would be the difference? I would imagine that like the smaller venues, the spot shows, oh, lots of cash, easier, easier it, to skim. Is it the size of the venue or is it who controls the box office, which is Again, related to the size of the venue? And the larger arena is less so, I think, because, you know, there's there's a lot of the times the, the larger venues, the arenas are actually, from what I've read, cutting a check from their box office to right. the promoter. Right. So. So less opportunity at the Olympic, right? Well, not 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 just less opportunity, virtually no opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, they were the leaseholders of the Olympics, so they, you know they probably ran the box office. We all yeah. know uh, when Jarrett ran Nashville at the fairgrounds, who who ran the ticket counter? Was that in was Nashville? That, was that teeny? Yeah, teeny. Yes. Um, and again, using my personal experiences when I worked for Burt Prentice. Um, when he ran the fairgrounds, his, he had his staff running the, the ticket office when he ran his other smaller towns, same thing. He was in control. Um, he ran the Louisville gardens when I was there, that was not in his control. As a matter of fact, Bert didn't even go to the shows. I was the office representative and I would go, um, as soon as the, as soon as the first match started, I would go to the box office, uh, get the number, call Bert and give it to him. And then during intermission was when we would go settle up. And they didn't cut me a check. There was cash. Um, but uh, as you said, sometimes it's a check. So at a venue like the LA Memorial Coliseum, they had their own box office staff in place. Mm. Yeah. It's going to be virtually impossible for LaBelle to, to swipe money here. Yeah. So that means that Blassie and Tolis probably are not right. Uh, it probably wasn't more than 25,000. And we've discussed a few pieces of evidence that support 25,000. Let's now look at the other figure, the 18, mm. approximately 18,000 figure. The Let's. original source of this number came from well-regarded wrestling historian, Steve Yohi. Okay. He says it was 17,900. Steve is a very reliable source. Like, like we said, yeah. he's a well-regarded historian, you know, probably one of, you know, one of the three or four, I hate Mount Rushmore's, but if there was a Mount <laughs> Rushmore of wrestling historians, he's on it. Oh yeah. But what was Steve's source? 
Because remember, every source has a source, of course, mm-hmm. and it would help us if we knew the source's source. That, unfortunately, I do not know. And that would have been a big help here. But again, we have the word of Steve. And I went and did a little more digging. The other source for this number was from the L.A. Coliseum's website. On their site, they have a historical timeline section that details some of the significant events held at the Coliseum over the years. And included in that timeline is the Blasi Tolis match. Oh, well. Now, there's also a little blurb about the match, and it does contain some minor inaccuracies. Um, For example, it claimed that the two fought every week on TV to build up to the match. But Mm. the gist of of it is the Coliseum on their website states that the match took place, quote, in front of a crowd of 17,847. Okay. So first observation... That number is awfully close to what Steve said. Yeah. Which means this could have been Steve's source. But we don't know that for a fact. And if Steve had another source, the fact that two completely separate sources line up does sort of give us an inkling that, all right, we need to investigate this further. I emailed the Coliseum. And as I mentioned earlier, I got a response from the guest experiences manager. Uh, named her name is Emily Marquina or Marquina. And she told me, I, I basically asked her where they got this number from. And is there any uh, paperwork, original documentation of this? She told me that the, all of the historical information on the site comes from within the Coliseum archives directly. That's her direct quote. Okay. Um, she said they don't currently have any of the actual paperwork or even copies of it. Um, but she did say, and again, this is a direct quote, the attendance is recorded as such within our own historical record. Interesting. So it's not quite a smoking gun, but it's got a lot of credibility to it. Yeah. We can understand hmm. why LaBelle would publicly embellish the number if it was only 18,000, why he wanted to say 25. And in this case, since he very specifically was running this show with the intent of breaking a record previously held a uh, previously set in 1952 with attendance of 25,200 something people. He's, he was dead set on announcing a number higher than that, no matter what. Yeah. And the fact that this number, the 25,847 is just slightly higher than the 25,256. Now we can see, okay, well that's incredibly convenient. Yeah. There's also no reason for the Coliseum to understate the attendance. I'm assuming they're going to get a flat fee from LaBelle. So it's not like, you know, they have incentive to lie one way or the other if they're getting a commission. But there's no reason if there were 25,000 people in there, there's no way the Coliseum's own internal documentation would have only said 17,837. So... That right there, you know, to me is significant evidence that that says the 18,000 number is more likely to be correct. We had a few pieces of evidence supporting the 25,000, but none of them were particularly solid. Here, the Coliseum of Zinfo is a neutral, unbiased source. But there's another piece of information 
that I actually discovered this afternoon. And I'm, I'm serious. Wow. Uh, literally, literally while doing some <laughs> math, I stumbled upon something. We talked about the average ticket price using the numbers publicly reported of yeah. 25,847 fans paying 142,000, whatever. And I said the average ticket price worked out to $5.50. What I left out was that it was exactly $5.50. If you, if you run it out to a, a million decimal places, it's 5.5000000000. Hmm. Hmm. It is <laughs> virtually impossible for that to occur randomly in nature. Remember, they sold 25,000, uh, they claimed 25,847. Ticket yeah. prices were $750, $5, and $250. If you don't believe me, you want to play around with your calculator, put, put in a <laughs> bunch of numbers at all the different price tiers, cross multiply them, add them up, and then divide them by the total. It's virt It's not impossible, but it's, 99.9999% impossible to have the overall average of 25,847 tickets not only be a round number like $5.50, but be exactly yeah. $5.50. Wow. So what I think happened was LaBelle knew no matter, well, of course, if he had 50,000, he'd announce 50,000, but if he had less than 25,256, he was going to announce a number more, a little more than slightly above it. Like, certainly you couldn't say 25,257. We beat it by one person. That would seem <laughs> suspicious. So he picked a number that was a little above it, but more than just slightly above it. Yeah. And then, probably knowing what the actual average ticket price was, he then said, okay, it looks like, you know, about $5.50. So he then took 25847 and multiplied it by exactly $5.50, and it came out to $142,158.50. Hmm. So, and, and to me, I know math goes over a lot of people's heads, but if you understand math and data and statistics, this is the smoking gun. There's no way the average ticket price could have worked out to an exact number of $5.50. Huh. There it is. And there's another piece of evidence, and that is my conversation with Jeff Walton. We still haven't okay. talked about what he thinks of all this. Oh, wow. So I didn't get into two, I didn't get into these specific details, but I told him, you know, at the time it was 25.8. Um, Steve Yohe and the Coliseum think it was more like 18,000. So first I asked him, what was your recollection of the day? Uh, and what he said was, at some point, I believe it was at intermission, that he and Jimmy Lennon went into the office and asked Mike LaBelle what they should announce as the attendance and gate. And at that point, Mike gave them these numbers. I asked Jeff if he had seen these numbers written down on any paperwork at all. And he said, no, he didn't see any paperwork or anything like that. So I asked him 52 years, well, 51 plus years after the fact, based on his recollection of, of, of the day of the crowd, what he, you know, what he recalls seeing out there, does he believe 
the 25,000 number or the 18,000 number, which one of the two is more likely? And he said, and again, you know, 50 years ago, it's it's really hard to remember, but he said he believes that the 18,000 number was probably closer to the real number. Huh. Okay. So, uh, you know, again, he's, you know, so given those two numbers and given the fact that we've sort of used the Coliseum's unbiased records as well as uh, math, and now Walton also agreeing that, yeah, it probably was 18,000 or so. I feel very comfortable and confident that that was the real number. Yeah, it's another, another, definitely another, another check there. Wow. So, yeah, so he didn't break the record. And now going back to the gate, because, and, and remember we said when gates are reported publicly, that, you know, means they're more likely to be correct. We have no idea what Mike put down on any commission documents. Hmm. I guess it's possible he so wanted to save face that he paid extra taxes. Um, oh, this wow. would have been, uh, I, I doubt it, <laughs> but if he did, it would have been 5% of $40,000. It would have been about two grand. Okay. But it would have been more than that, but that's something I'll get to a little later. So in all likelihood, Mike announced that number publicly and on the commission paperwork, put the real numbers, but we'll never, we'll never know what they were, but he probably felt that um, maybe he was hooked in enough with the commission because remember uh, his mother, Aileen Eaton, Aileen LaBelle, and then later Aileen Eaton at one point worked, I believe worked for the commission. Yeah. So they were probably, you know, really tight and he felt he could get away with publicly reporting this fake number. But the question is, what would the gate have been if they drew 17847 In order to do that, we need to know the average ticket price. And while we don't know the average ticket price, as I said earlier, my guess is that LaBelle used the actual approximate average ticket price to come up with the embellished gate. So figuring that the average, the real average ticket price was the same, somewhere around $5.50, with a crowd of 17847 it would have been just under $100,000. Hmm. Uh, in fact, with 17847 attendance, multiply that by five fifty, and you get $98,158.50. Hmm. I think we have an answer to the question. Again, I, I'm not going to swear on a Bible or on my mom's grave or bet you a million dollars that yeah. the attendance was 17847. But if I was a gambling man, and uh, anyone who knows me knows <laughs> I can be at times, yes, at times, certainly I would, I would take an even money bet because yeah. I'm far more than 50% sure that 17847 was the real number, or at the very yeah. least, that the real number was much closer to that than it was to 25,800, whatever. Yeah. So John, have I, have I ruined Christmas for you? Have I burst your bubble? No, no, my, my, you're, you're, you're blowing my bubble, making it even larger <laughs> and, and rounder and fuller and full of bubble stuff. This is great. Yeah, no, there's no, nothing has been burst. This is fantastic. I, especially as I, I, I am terrible at, math statistics so i love 
hearing this and just listening listening to you break this all down in a way that a a a person like myself can understand. So all right, so this is this is fantastic. So we now believe that the 1971 number was inflated. We also have a mm-hmm. general understanding that wrestler wrestling promoters as a whole fudge the numbers when they announce them publicly. Mm-hmm. And in particular, it seems that these big stadium shows were more regularly subject to embellishment. We all know ninety. We all we all know the number ninety three thousand one hundred seventy three, <laughs> and yeah. some of us may also know the number seventy seven thousand one hundred seventy eight. So, with that being said, if we know the nineteen seventy one number was embellished, and we know that the goal all along stated by LaBelle was his intent to break the previous record. How do we know that the previous record was a real number? Oh, dear. So this is where we're really going to get into math stuff. So if the last 15, 20 minutes bored you to tears, (laughs) I, I understand completely, listeners, but the next 20 minutes will be more of the same. So if you want to fast forward to about five minutes before the end of the podcast where we do trivia and where we do This Month I Learned, I won't be offended. This is good. Because now we're going to talk about not only the 1952 number, but also a 1934 number. Oh, wow. So first off, 1952, uh, the original California state record that LaBelle said he was trying to beat was a card headlined by Luthez against Baron Michelle Leone. And this was held at an outdoor stadium, Gilmore Field. In that show, Drury reported 25,256 fans and a gate of $103,277.75. Those are the numbers that were reported publicly. And this also is the first ever wrestling card in the United States and perhaps also Canada, but I'm not sure of that, to draw over $100,000. Given that it just barely broke that mark, John, that means mm. if I can prove or get substantial evidence saying that this number was embellished, that this would not have been the first ever 100000 gate. And I think if that, if I can prove that, then I will have ruined Christmas for everybody. <laughs> But the plot thickens a little more because I did some digging around on WrestlingData.com and I found an even larger publicly reported attendance figure for a card held in 1934 in California. And this was for a match between Jim Londis and Man Mountain Dean, Hmm. where the LA Times reported the crowd the day after the show. And this card was held at Wrigley Field. And yes, This is the L.A. Wrigley Field. Um, It was owned by the same family that owned the Cubs, but it was actually named Wrigley Field before the Cubs ballpark was named Wrigley Field. They announced the attendance in the L.A. Times the day after the card as 38,756. So now LaBelle embellished attendance for his show so that he could claim to beat an attendance record set in 1952 that may also have been embellished, that may not have been the real (laughs) fake record. (laughs) 
Sometimes in pro wrestling, the in-ring antics aren't the only things that are completely made up. Yeah. Did, did, so, did Hulk Hogan say something about this? At one yeah, point? we need to on ask Twitter? Hulk Hogan. because he. Pro- I mean, I think if you ask Hulk Hogan, he would tell you he was also in the main event uh, of that 1934 <laughs> card. And it was a yeah. it was a three way between him, Londis, and Man Mountain Dean, and he body slammed he body slammed Mountain Man, Man Mountain Dean, while also uh, while also choke slamming Londis. <laughs> yes. So let's start with 1934. First thing I did was dug out my copy of Rock Rims's book, Legends and Icons, which covers the Olympic in Southern California. In this book. He lists the actual attendance for that card as 23,765. Okay. So I emailed Rock, asked him for his source for that info, plus a few other questions. And believe it or not, Rock is out of the wrestling historian game completely. He sent me a very polite response saying he is uh, no longer wanting to discuss wrestling in any way, shape, or form. Oh, wow. I'm incredibly jealous. Hopefully one day I will be able to do that as well. Yeah. Wow. So without knowing the source's source, can't really weigh the, that number's legitimacy or not. But I was also, I was talking with Tim Hornbaker about the 1952 match. And I asked him about 1934. Uh, he mentioned that he thought the lower attendance figure that Rock had was a number that came out several years later as part of a lawsuit. So I did some more digging. I found a 1937 article on Lou Darrow, who was promoting Southern California uh, before the Eaton and LaBelle clan came along. And in this 1937 article, three years after the Londis-Dean match, it says, quote, Athletic commission figures reveal that Lou drew 23,565 paid admissions to Wrigley Field for the Londis Man Mountain event of 1934. Hmm. And this was an article. This wasn't a, you know, a wrestling article. It wasn't promoting a wrestling show. This was an article about Darrow written by Braven Dyer. And a quick Google search. Uh, taught me that Braven Dyer was a sports writer and columnist for the Los Angeles Times for nearly four decades. Oh, wow. So the source, Braven Dyer, is legitimate. And his source, which was Athletic Commission Figures, is also a good one. So that's, you know, and not to the column that, okay, the attendance was actually 23,000 something. Rock says 23,765. Um, Brave and Dyer says 23,565. So it's possible that Rock just trans, you know, uh, made yeah. uh, an error with one digit. Um, right around this time, I posted something on X, the app formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> this is going to fucking kill me. What's the over under on number number of months I try and say X before I just give up and start calling it Twitter again? Let me just move on to threads. Jesus. Um, <laughs> but I posted on X about this and I got a response from Steve Johnson. Steve Johnson is literally writing the book on Jim Londis. Ah. I think he's actually finished the book, um, but it won't be out uh, for a while yet. I think he told me it's about to go to the editor. Huh. He's binding so, the book. Yes, but he literally wrote the book on Jim Londis. And he said that um, 
the 38,000 figure was wrong and that a couple of days later in some of the local papers, they corrected it. So I went back to newspapers.com and did a search and I couldn't find anything that explicitly stated a correction. Like there was an article that said, yesterday we said this show drew 38,000. However, it turns out it actually drew 23,000. But what I did find was a paragraph that showed up in several newspapers the day after the show, which means it was sent out by one of the wire services saying the attendance was 23,000. However, I also saw one that claimed it was over 40,000. <laughs> so again, you know, source yeah. is source. If, if we're saying that what was printed in the newspaper, the 38,000 was false. Well, then we must also weigh these other numbers, the 23,000 and the 40,000, the same way, because all we know is their numbers printed in the newspaper. Yeah. There's a picture from the LA Times um, of the stadium, of the crowd during Londa's Dean. And I got to tell you, this picture, it looks like WrestleMania. It looks like, you know, WrestleMania from one of the recent years. Mm. It looks every bit of 38,000 and more. But as we said earlier, this is your mind. It could be your mind playing tricks on you. When Diane Devine saw a huge crowd and heard 25,000, her mind probably just associated the two together. Yeah. I look at this crowd in, in Wrigley Field where every seat in the grands, in the stands seems to be taken and there are tons of seats on the field. It looks every bit of 38,000 and more. But again, that could be my mind playing tricks on me yeah and also we also know uh through google through well through wikipedia that the seating capacity for wrigley field for baseball was twenty-two thousand. which means to get to thirty-eight thousand, you have to put sixteen thousand chairs on the field my goodness which seems highly unlikely so that's that right there tells me, okay, maybe it was 23. But there's another piece of information in the article that went out on the wire service that should be very helpful because not only did they report the attendance as 23,000, but John, they gave us a gross dollar figure. Ooh. And that gross dollar figure was $40,922. So John, what have we learned? When you have attendance and you have gate, what else can you calculate? The ticket price. The average. The average ticket average, price. Average. And from there, there's one other piece of information that if we know might be helpful. So what else will we need to know? What the, the actual ticket prices were. Yes. So $40,922 divided by the 23000 attendance figure comes out to an average ticket price of $1.78. Okay. If the 38,756 attendance figure was correct and the gate figure was correct, that comes out to an average ticket price of $1.06. So now if we know the ticket prices, we can figure out which one of these is far more likely because they're obviously very different. They ran ads in the paper for this show for a week leading up to it. And ticket prices were listed as $1, $2, and $3. Hmm. 
Now, when we had ticket prices for the 71 show, we had three tiers as well, but the lowest tier was a kid's price. So here, if the $1 was a kid's price and the $2 was GA and the $3 was floor seats, even with an average ticket price of $1.78, something still doesn't seem right. We would expect it to be between $2 and $3 and much closer to $2. However, the same article from 1937 talking about uh, Lou Darrow also had something from Lou where he stated that the $1 price was an adult price for uh, a large section of the grandstand because he wanted as many people to attend the show as possible, even if it meant foregoing money. Hmm. So the dollar was not a kid's hmm. price. It was so you figure floor seats, field seats were $3. The good stadium seats, you know, maybe the, the, the lower deck or the lower levels or the first, you know, several rows yeah. were $2 and then everything else was a dollar. Okay. If that's the case, a dollar seventy eight seems mm. reasonable. Yeah, it means yeah. you had a, a ton of people just wanting to get there and and willing to sit in the cheap seats yeah. to see it. And the one dollar six cent average ticket price absolutely doesn't work. That would mean like yeah. like that ninety eight percent of the people only paid a dollar. And from the picture we have yeah. seen of the show, there were tons of people in all all over the place. Oh yeah. So, using that information, the 23,000 number seems likely. And again, we already had a very good source with a very good source claiming 23,565, but it doesn't hurt to do a little math. Mm. So now, we have 1971. Attendance figure given publicly was false. We have 1934. Publicly given attendance figure, the initial attendance figure given in the LA Times, which was not the same number sent out to the wire services and reported later, was false. The one sent out to the wire services ends up being correct. So that leaves one more show to analyze, and that's 1952. Here we have publicly reported attendance and revenue. Attendance, 25,256. Revenue, $103,277.75. Doing the math, that works out to an average ticket price of $4.09. So the next step is to try and find the listed ticket prices for the show. I was able to find the listed ticket prices for 1971 and for 1934 through uh, a search on newspapers.com. I had no such luck for the 1952 show. So I put out a post on X. (laughs) And I got a response from uh, someone who, I believe his name was Ethan Tyler. And he actually um, sent me a screenshot of a current listing on eBay for um, a printed ticket from the original printer's stock. So it wasn't a used ticket, but it was, I I guess, something, you know, from the, the original stock of tickets for the show, and it listed the ticket price for um, grandstand seating as $3.75. Okay. He also sent me another 
picture of a ticket for what was listed as box seats, which I take to mean floor seats, for $5. Huh. I don't know if there was a third tier, either a kid's price or a super cheap, you know, seat price. But knowing that the two main tiers were $5 and $3.75, we would expect the average ticket price not only to fall in between the two, but to be closer to $3.75 than it was to $5. And sure enough, the average ticket price that we calculated of $4.09 fits that description to a T. Mm. So at the very least, we can't say that based on these gate figures, it, it couldn't have been real. This falls in line with what it would have been if the attendance was legitimate. Huh. So now we go to the archives. Because Ooh. as I've mentioned a couple of times in this podcast, the California State Archives had house show records from 1946 through 1960 complete. And here for each year, actually for each month, they have anywhere from four to seven pages that were torn out of a, of a ledger, uh, like an eight and a half by 14 ledger book. And each page listed up to 30 shows and they were separated into four categories. There was Northern California wrestling shows, Northern California boxing shows, Southern California wrestling shows, and Southern California boxing shows. Huh. So we go to the ledger pages for May of 1952. And we go to the page that covers Southern California wrestling shows. And here they, for each show, it lists the club that promoted it. Um, typically, each venue had their own club, which often was a sponsoring organization or just the name of a business entity that was the local promoter for that venue. So it has the club that promoted the event, the city the show was held in, the date of the show, the last names of the referee, doctor, and inspector working the show, the attendance, the gross receipts, the state tax paid, and what the main event for the show was. So looking at May 1952 and looking for the Fez-Leone match, in looking at the attendance listed with the commission and the gross receipts listed with the commission, Neither number matches what was reported publicly. Huh. But here's where it gets weird. <laughs> one of the numbers is larger and one of the numbers is lower. What? What? The attendance listed for this show, according to the California State Athletic Commission, was 26,000 233. That's almost a thousand more than what was reported publicly, which makes no damn sense at all. You might be thinking, well, maybe there were comps. There weren't 900 comps given out to a wrestling show in 1952. So I, I, I asked Tim Hornbaker about this. He doesn't know either. I, uh, I, I have no idea why, but again, at the very least, it's a number close to the one that's publicly reported. Yep. Hmm. 
but the gross receipts for the card, according to the California State Athletic Commission, was $86,745.91, which is a heck of a lot lower than $103,000. In fact, it's about about 16% lower. And if it's true, it means that this show was not the first ever six-figure gate for pro wrestling in the U.S. And a whole lot of people who've thrown that factoid out over the years are going to be disappointed. Hell, Mm -hmm. Baker himself dedicated a whole chapter in his (laughs) book on the National Wrestling Alliance to the Thez Leone match and the record-setting gate. So therefore, John, if I'm about to go public and say that this show did not draw $100,000, I really need to be damn sure. So I'm going to keep on digging. Dig, dig, dig. So the first step is, for me at least, is to go back to my best friend in the whole wide world, math. We have (laughs) an attendance number and a gross receipts number, both listed side by side on a form uh, from the State Athletic Commission. So let's look at the average ticket price. Let's divide those numbers. And if you do that using the 26,233 attendance and the 86,700 blah, 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 gross receipts, the average ticket price would have been $3.31. Now with ticket prices of $5.375, this is lower than that lower price tier. Now we don't know if they had a separate price for kids or if there was a cheap seats GA number. Mm. So it's a it's a dead end of sorts, but it's still to me, it still feels like that's not right. Uh it still feels like the number should be much closer, if not greater, than three dollars and seventy-five cents. Yeah. Um also we have the feeling that when they report gate numbers publicly, it's more likely to be correct. We know in 1971 that wasn't the case. We believe in 1934, though, that that was the case. So again, I want to believe the 103,000 number. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to find it. Or at the very least, I'm going to exhaust every resource before I can claim that it wasn't. Hmm. And here, this is where our our new friend from X, Ethan Tyler, probably threw me a lifeboat. Because he didn't just tell me what the ticket prices were. He showed me images of the actual tickets. And when you look at these tickets, there's something interesting. Um, So we'll start with the $3.75 ticket, which was for uh, the grandstand seating. It lists the state tax as 16 cents. Now we know for a fact that the state tax paid to California was 5%. If you calculate 5% of $3.75, it is not 16 cents. Huh. It's 18.75 cents. What? The state tax isn't the only tax listed on the ticket. There's also a federal tax of 60 cents. And that 60 cents is exactly 16% of the full ticket price of $3.75. Doing some more math, 
if you take that 16% off the top of the ticket price and then multiply it by 5%, you get 16 cents. Technically, you get 15.75 cents, rounded up to 16. So what this means is off the top, before anything else, they took 16% out and paid it to uh, Uncle Sam. And then they had a number of which they calculated 5% of to pay the state tax. So now I'm wondering if the number listed in the gross receipts on the commission document of 86,000 and change, if that was after the 16% federal tax was taken out. So John, uh, do you remember your Mm. algebra? I know you said you're not good at math, but do you remember algebra? Oh, no, I do not remember algebra Uh, whatsoever. I'm going to ask anyway. Okay. If we believe that 86,745 equals 84% of a number X, how would you solve for X? I need need to, I need to. You want to write it down? I'm going to get my, my, so we got 80, we got 80, 86, 7, 4, 5 is... 16%. So remember, remember in algebra, what you're trying to do is to get one side to equal X. So right now the equation is 86,000, blah, 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 equals 0.84 X. Gotcha. So to solve for X, you divide both sides by 0.84. Ah. And if you do that, if you divide 86,000, $745.91 by 84% or 0.84, you get 103,268.94. Well, look at there. Which is literally within $9 of the 103277 number listed publicly. Wow. So thanks to our good friend, Math. Yeah. We now have pretty significant and clear evidence that the publicly reported attendance figure of 25,256 for the 1952 match between Fez and Leone was likely correct. And in fact, the real number may have been a little bit larger because they said there was 26,200 something to the commission. Yeah. Huh. And I found one other piece of evidence supporting all this math stuff, um, a secondary LA paper, the daily mirror, the day after the 52 match, not only listed the 103,000 number, but also stated that the net was $81,523 and 45 cents. Hmm. And in this case, if you take the 86,745 and then subtract 5%, for the California state taxes, you get a number within 1% of 81,523 Oh, wow. So this all makes sense to me and my math, uh, yeah. my mathematical mind. So there you go. Out of the three publicly reported attendance figures for shows in 71, 52, and 34, two of them were fake. And one of them was real. (laughs) Wow. And as a slight addendum to all this, now that we've learned about net receipts 
and how these dollar figures sometimes had the tax taken, the federal tax taken out of it. If we go back to 1934, when we had that $40,000 gate figure reported publicly, if that was a net number and not a gross number, it still lines up with 23,000 attendants. Gotcha. There's no way it doesn't add enough more money that the 38,000 attendants would have would have made sense. So it still checks out. Hmm. So the 1934 crowd was probably 23,565. Okay. The 1952 crowd was probably between 25,256 and 26,233. And the 1971 crowd was probably 17,847. So, John, if you ever are playing a wrestling trivia game and this subject (laughs) comes up, you better get it right. (laughs) Not by using math, just from uh, remembering remembering the numbers. Just from memory. (laughs) And speaking of trivia... Now that I have bored you all to tears with math. Not me, not me. Let's go to John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, where, John, you've been doing really well for several months now. So let's keep it it going. There is no math math involved in this. Okay. Question number one. And, of course, this question might be bullshit. Who knows? According, (laughs) According to Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia game, who is the only man ever to body slam Haystacks Calhoun? Uh, I would go with Bruno San Martino. That is correct. Correct. And let me ask you, do we believe that that is actually correct? Correct. I don't know if he's the only one. Um, my, my dad actually saw Bruno body slam Haystacks at the Westchester County Center in White Plains, New York, as a as a as a as a young man. So I know that Bruno did slam him, but we don't know who else may have at some point. We don't know if it's like Andre, where it comes out over time that it happened a lot. El El Canic or whoever. Right. All right. Question number two. (laughs) Who calls himself the universal heartthrob? And John, don't count yourself. (laughs) That's our friend, Austin Idol. Austin Idol. Two for two. Nice. All right. This one might be a little tricky. Yeah. Which guest celebrities provided commentary during several matches in WrestleMania three? Uh, Mary Hart and Bob Euchre. Holy shit. Are you go? Are you Googling this? No, you hear me. You hear me. You heard me Googling. You're absolutely correct. I never would have got WrestleMania three. Yeah, I don't know. Did, yeah. uh, did you watch WrestleMania three on uh, on pay per view? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I I, uh, I think it was, it was uh, no, I wasn't. I'm thinking of WrestleMania four, where we had uh, the one in, one in on the living room TV, and it was the Clash of Champions on, okay. the, on the bedroom yeah, TV watching. Well, Re- Re- WrestleMania three was a big deal. I remember my my my, my younger cousins coming over. Uh, they were crying because they were worried. 
about Andre uh, destroying Hulk Hogan. There were <laughs> tears. We were so stressed about this Andre Hogan thing. Oh, yeah, watch live. Yeah, I think so that I, was the first one that we watched live on pay-per-view. Yeah. I watched it on closed circuit at Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, I watched, wow. so I watched WrestleMania 1 live was in the garden. I watched it on closed circuit at the Nassau Coliseum. Oh, wow. WrestleMania 2, part of it was at the Nassau Coliseum. I watched the whole thing on closed circuit at the Felt Forum. Nice. That's funny. Which is uh, a small venue attached to the Madison Square Garden complex, for those of you mm-hmm. outside of New York. And then yeah. WrestleMania 3, which, of course, was in uh, Detroit, I watched on closed circuit at the Garden. The only WrestleMania I've seen in person live was 30 in New Orleans. I was at that one, too. We've talked about that in the past. Yes. That's yes, yes, before yes, yes. we even knew of each other's existence. Yeah. There, I think, yeah. were three, two or three times we were in the same general place at the same general time. And yes. WrestleMania 30 was one. Of them. <laughs> All right. You are three for three. <sighs> Question four is labeled true false, but it's actually a fill in the blank. Of course it is. <laughs> so, and it's the name of a wrestling move flying okay. blank kick. Flying. First blank. thing that comes to your mind. Don't overthink it. Drop kick. Correct. Okay. If you thought about it, you say, well, drop kick's one word. So why would they put a blank there? So maybe they mean back, back kick or spinning kick or blah, 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 blah. Yeah. No. Drop kick. Okay. Flying drop kick. Four okay. for four. Perfect score. Boom. Nice. Now, John, in addition to being a trivia whiz, you are oh. also the curator of, uh, <laughs> Footage on YouTube, and uh, we put together playlists and put them on the Charting the Territories YouTube channel. We've got some playlists for Freddie Blassie and for John Tolis, right? Or do we just have Blassie? Oh, we've got both. Oh, we've got both. Yeah, we do have both. Okay, I'm going through it now. Um, John, for these, since we're running terribly long and since I put everyone to sleep with math... (laughs) Um, just give us the bare bone. What matches um, are part of this curated collection? So for Blassie. Oh, Blassie. I got Blassie versus Wild Red Berry. Uh, young, uh, dark-haired, baby-faced Blassie. Uh, great match. Uh, and then I have uh, Blassie versus the uh, aforementioned uh, Baron Michelle Leone from LA, 53. I got a Blassie interview. A great match. The Blassie, Ricky Dozan from L.A., March 62, tremendous match. Uh, then a Blassie, Ricky Dozan, Japan, uh, April. Then I've got uh, Blassie Tolos uh, from a stretcher match from the Olympic, a little film excerpt from 1970. Okay, so and... that was part of their, their feud in 1970. So yep. the two Ricky Dozan matches were less than a month apart, one in L.A., one in Japan. Were yep. they... Were they wildly different matches in style? Was there anything yes. in the second match that played off the first or no? no nothing that I noticed. I mean, the, 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 the second, the, the first one in LA is just a, this is one of those matches. Like if I had to choose a match to show aliens, what pro wrestling was, this is a perfect choice. This, this, you could have the same match, exact same match today on TV or a, premium live event and it would work you could do the exact same stuff aside from blassie's shouting racial slurs um you could do the and it's fantastic the one in japan's a little weird 
I don't like it as much as far as the actual wrestling part of it goes, but it's awesome, awesome footage. Ricky Dozan in that match almost reminds me more of like mid 70s Bruno. Like his offense is just basically lots of chops and kicks that Blassie sells sells his butt off for. But the, the one in L.A., it's much more of a back and forth with a lot more psychology going on. I enjoyed that one a lot more. All right. And then for John Tolis, what do we uh, have? Oh, I've got very, very young Tolis teaming with Han Schnabel versus Shandor Jabo and Dr. Lee Grable, the Lee Grable in Hollywood. Uh, great match. Uh, I think it's from like 1960, Tolos, the Tolos brothers uh, versus Bob Nandor and Chet Wallach. There's actually uh, what you would almost call like a table spot in this match, which is really cool. Probably the, the, the earliest occurrence that I've seen of footage involving a table in a wrestling match. And just another brief uh, eight millimeter thing of, of the, the Tolos brothers again in the Maple Leaf Gardens in May of 62 being heels with them getting egg on their face and having a giant tantrum after the match. That's a very, very quick, but fun little, little match there. All right. Be sure to check out our playlists on our YouTube channel. In addition, John also shared with me some uh, photos and other items from his personal collection and personal archives. I will post pictures of those on X, the app (laughs) formerly known as Twitter, uh, including uh, some great magazine covers um, oh, yeah. including, you know, stuff very relevant to what we're talking about now. An uh, article, uh, Fred Blassie reveals why Tolis blinded me. Um, yes. so yeah, articles about this feud and about this, the, about this big match held in 1971. Mm-hmm. And that I think just about does it for this month. We went longer than we have in a while, but, uh, like I said, oh, I, I really, I don't just want to say, well, I think this number's right. Or I think this number's wrong. I really felt it was important to go above and beyond to figure out whether these numbers, you know, which of these disputed attendance figures are more likely to be correct and more likely to be incorrect. So thank you for bearing, uh, sticking with us through all of that. Yes. And be sure to visit chartingtheterritories.com for more on the LaBelle territory in 1971. And of course, if you want to learn more about Jeff Walton's involvement and his life as a jack of all trades, be sure to reach out to his son, Scott at Scott M Walton at gmail.com and order yourself a copy of Richmond nine, five, one, seven, one, uh, Jeff Walton's memoirs of his time in the professional wrestling business. And if you want to learn about Leroy McGurk's territory in the 1970s, I have two books currently on Amazon and on our website covering the territory, Volume 1 covers from 1971 through 1973, and Volume 2 is 74 through 76. And as I announced last month in Waterloo, Iowa, my third book will cover the Heart of America, a.k.a. Central States Territory, from 1971 through 1973, and will be out in the fall. Next month on the podcast, we'll be heading to the from the West Coast to the Gulf Coast for a look at Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling in 1971. Bobby Shane comes in for a big run in a small territory, plus Don Fargo, Cowboy Bob Kelly, Ken Lucas, and tons more, including a young Frank Morrell and a young Kevin Sullivan. Baby. Yeah, Kevin Sullivan as a rookie uh, named Johnny West. 
wrestled in Gulf Coast in 1971. So hopefully uh, you guys learned some new things this month, just like John and I learn things all the time when we're doing research and reading about wrestling and history. And each of us at the end of every podcast name one thing we learned during the month, and we call it This Month I Learned. So John, what did you learn this month? Uh, so yeah, as, as, a, as a pro wrestling fan, when you do, people talk about college football and its relation to pro wrestling, the first school I think about, and probably other wrestling fans think about, West Texas State with the funks, Ted DiBiase, Tully Blanchard, Dito Santana, Brody Hanson, Bobby Duncan, so on and so forth. The list goes on and on. Um, of course, there are tons of other wrestlers who participated in college football with varying degrees of success. But what I always find interesting is when you, you've got a team with multiple guys who would all later become pro wrestlers. And I was I was reading an interview with Gene Lewis, real name Gene Pettit, probably best known for his year long run in the WWF as Cousin Luke. And this month I learned that at the University of Tampa, Gene Lewis played football with both Paul Orndorff and Dick Slater. Uh, also on that team uh, of note was John Matusek, who played oh, wow. Sloth, Sloth from the Goonies. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, those early early 70s University of Tampa football teams are pretty great. I think they're from like a three-year period there. Like 11 guys made it to the pros. Matusek, probably the best known as the number one draft pick. But yeah. So, all right. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know what? It's so funny. With all the work I was doing on this, uh, these attendance figures, I forgot to come up with a this month I learned. Um, you forgot so to learn. I forgot. Well, no, I learned lots of little things. <laughs> Most of what I learned, I've already said. Um, you, know, I, you know, I learned lots of things about the State Athletic Commission's records yes. and where they are oh, yeah. and what they, what's contained. But one thing I learned today, there are um, at least three AWA towns uh, in North Dakota uh, that the AWA ran regularly in the early 70s in North Dakota, where the newspapers are not available online. However, all three, the newspapers for all three of those cities, uh, plus most other major cities in North Dakota, are all available at the North Dakota State Archives in Bismarck. Oh. And since we know I love to visit State Archives to do some research, oh. that means that later this year, for the first time in my life, I am going to set foot in the state of North Dakota. Before I discovered state archives, you know, I would have to visit individual libraries. But there is one place in the state capital of Bismarck where they have newspapers from all over the state in one central location, which makes oh, my that, life uh, so oh, much easier. So, yeah, nice. all I have to do is go to Bismarck and I can uh -huh. uh, get uh, microfilm for the papers from Fargo, from Grand Forks, from Minot. I went to Montana last year for the first time ever. So it's only fitting that this year I go to... North Dakota. I guess yeah, that yeah. means eventually I'll have to hit South Dakota, Idaho, and Wyoming as well. Yeah. Make Oof. a loop out of the whole thing. Yeah. Then Utah. Uh, I've, well, so I've, I've had layovers in Salt Lake City uh, many occasions when I fly out west. <laughs> so I technically have set foot in Utah uh, before. The other states, uh, along with possibly Maine, and definitely Hawaii and Alaska, I think, would be the only states I've never set foot in. Huh. So, yeah, it'd be cool to get the, all those out of the way. 
Yeah. And for more to, to learn more all about my travels and my adventures, you can follow me on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, where my handle is at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. John, where can they find you on the X? I'm also on on the X as I uh, as I've been for uh, on, on Twitter for I think I've recently had my 12 year uh, Twitter now X anniversary. Uh, at, well, no, you, no, you have to start over. It's I think it's zero, zero yeah. when <laughs> Elon changed the name of the damn thing. That's <laughs> true. Uh, it's a J O N underscore B O U C H E R on X, and I'm also on Threads. I know we joked about Threads, but I think, think I actually joined Threads when I got that, that prompt on Instagram. So I'm on, I'm on threads too. I don't think I posted on threads, but I'm, I'm there. If you so want to thread, perhaps, me. perhaps he'll, he'll post some cool threads on <laughs> threads. <laughs> and also you uh, are one of the researchers for dark side of the ring. Uh, we're, we are recording this a couple of days after the bash at the beach episode aired. Oh, now, that's gotten boy. a lot of play and a lot of talk on the online. Oh, has it ever? Uh, and then uh, the next one that will air before this podcast comes out is Janetti, right? The finale. Yes, Marty. Marty, <laughs> party with Marty, baby. I'm going to imagine that's off the walls, batshit insane. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's. Well, yeah, awesome. Well, <laughs> thank you for all your hard work and, uh, you know, helping out Dark Side of the Ring. Um, yeah, and as you've said before, if you agree with things that were said on that show, it's probably because of John's research. And, and if, if not, uh, and if not, it's probably because he was overruled by Bischoff or whoever. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a legal team probably involved. The Charting the Territories <laughs> podcast comes out on the second Thursday of each and every month. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at Charting the Territories. Dot com. John, thank you as always. Next month, the King, Bobby Shane in Gulf Coast Wrestling. See you in September.